Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. On this podcast, I chat to authors about their books, the writing process, the social and political influences of the work, and how literature has the power to change the world. Today, I chat to author Jack Heath. Jack writes fiction for adults and fiction for children, and has published well over 30 books. We chat about Hideout, the third book in the Timothy Blake series following the huge success of Hangman and Hunter. We talk about character, morality, toxic masculinity, fight club, and everything in between. It's such an honour, Danny, um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here. And it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work and you've given it a lot of thought and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. (laughs) Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about (laughs) and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it. And I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoying listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast, Jack Heath. How are you? Very well, thanks, Danny. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic and I can't wait to talk to you about Hideout. You know, I've been hanging out for this third book in the series. I've been hanging out to talk about it. (laughs) Now, you are a well-known friend of the pod, um, appearing in, I don't know if you'll be surprised about this, Jack, but I was writing down all the episodes that you've been in and you were in episode 32. Look, I'm going to say and 33, but remember how I sort of cut it back and made it a PG version so the kids could listen to that episode without, without having to listen about That's cannibals. Right. It was a censored version, yeah. <laughs> it was a censored. So, you know, that's kind of two episodes, kind of one. But then you appeared in 83 and 151 and then you hosted 100 and interviewed me just for something a bit quirky because I, you know, had to celebrate 100th episode somehow. And um, then you're also co-hosting uh, with Adrian back on the uh, Words and Nerds third birthday, which was episode 210. So you were like expert level at this podcast, Jack. Plus, there was the one where you pranked me by pretending that the makers of 24 were going to try to sue me, sue us. I was hoping that you had forgotten about that one. (laughs) (laughs) Never. Never, never forgotten that one. That's true. That was the Nat Amor episode where we needed to prank someone. I'm very sorry about that, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Now, like I said, very excited to chat to you about the third instalment of the Timothy Blake series, as I like to call it, Hideout, following on, of course, from the huge success and my deep love of Hangman and Hunter. So, Jack, hit us with an elevator pitch of Hideout. So Hideout is about um, Timothy Blake, former FBI agent or FBI consultant, rather, who um, has tracked down a, a killer at a house and his plan is to murder that killer and then himself because he kind of has nothing left to live for and then realises that the house is actually a sort of commune filled with other murderers. And this kind of gives Blake something to live for again. He decides to sort of pick all these people off in their sleep, but before he can get around to doing that, one of them turns up dead and he realises he might not be the only person in the house with that plan. That's uh, that's the elevator pitch. Mm, good in a nutshell. And I'm so glad that he turned up at a house of murderers or it would have been a very short book. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. If the house had been empty, it could have been just um, a novella, not even a novella, story. just kind of a, a, page. a, a short story. Yeah. <laughs> now, Hideout begins, and I think you told me this, but I forgot, and I only remembered when I started reading Hideout, it just it picks up exactly where Hunter left off, doesn't it? And I love that because it finishes, he's at the door, and then it starts and he's at the door with his hammer. And this was always the way you intended to continue this book, was it not? My basic process, if, if the book sells, then I'll come up with a way to write a sequel. So, no, there, there was no plan. <laughs> um, but it is true that typically when I'm, writing, um, uh, when I'm writing a sequel to something, I have to make a decision about how much time has passed. You know, is it, is it three months in the character's life? Is it a year or what? Um, and in this case, I was like, well, why don't I begin sort of just five seconds after the previous book ended? In fact, I'll go one better begin five seconds before the last book ended and just last line of the book to try to get everyone back in the, in the mood of things. So it was a little bit weird because I was writing um, the book so long after um, to try to kind of recapture the spirit of that moment. But, um, and then it was even harder, of course, to work out, okay, which readers are going to have read the previous books, which ones haven't, what do I need to put in for context, what can I leave out? But um, I, I think it probably helps that the publisher has released a new edition of Hunter that comes with the first chapter of Hideout at the back of the book. Um, so that, that kind of readers should be able to dive right in regardless of the context, I hope. That's the plan. Yeah, no, I think so too. I always sort of try and read series as could I read this as a standalone, you know, and it's only obviously because I'd read the three that I thought, oh, this is great because I don't think many books in a series that I've read anyway, like you said, start five seconds before the, you know, last one ended. So it really brought me back, right back to Hunter and I was there and I was remembering what was happening and the book just sort of came back into my mind. Oh, that's good. Well, hopefully it redeems me a little bit because I had an awful lot of um, comments on social media about the cliffhanger ending of Hunter and that wasn't actually supposed to be a cliffhanger. Basically I thought that uh, at the end of Hunter, um, Timothy Blake has nobody left to eat except Fred so he decides to kill himself and then in the very last line he discovers that there are more people to eat. So it was supposed to be a happy ending not a cliffhanger. Um, The reader was just supposed to kind of draw those dots together but no one did and I generally think that um, you know, if, if one reader doesn't get it, then it's the reader. But if all the readers don't get it, then it's the author. So that's my bad. That's, uh, and so I had to kind of write a whole book to, to redeem myself. <laughs> oh, people love a cliffhanger. I think people pretend not to love a cliffhanger, but that's, that's what we love because let me hang out for the next book. I know that's where I was at. I mean, you know, I, you know I have a bit of an unnatural love for Timothy Blake. And, you know, I did see that as a bit of a happy ending. I went, oh, look, happy days. He's got like a buffet. He's turned up to a buffet of bad people, people even badder than him. But I feel like a lot of readers, and not just my readers, but readers in general, they're not accustomed to kind of looking at genre fiction. They're not looking for those hidden depths necessarily. And the thing is, those hidden depths are always there, not just just in my books, but in the books of every writer I know, they have to devote so much of their energy to putting together these plots and characters and settings and stuff that they absolutely, um, just like me, they don't leave anything on the shelf. There's all these sort of subtexts and clues and political stuff and themes, but 
a lot of people, when they pick up a crime novel, I think they're not looking for that stuff so they don't see it. So an ending that just appears to be a cliffhanger, they treat it as though it is a cliffhanger. Whereas you, you know my process, you were, you were looking for something beyond what was just the words on the page. And because I speak to a lot of crime writers too, and it's funny, I was just speaking to Chris Hammer and a couple of weeks ago I was speaking to um, Craig Sisterson, who is a huge you know, crime writing expert, and we were talking about how crime writing has, it's kind of always been like this, but I think it's evolved even more so, and it's no longer just a dead body. You know, there are plot intricacies and there are complexities and layers and character development and, you know, emotional content that is far more, and I think readers are getting a little bit more savvy and they're kind of expecting that now in their crime fiction. Would you agree? I would agree. And I think it's remarkable how quickly that that transformation has happened. Like just um, literally half an hour ago, I started reading I Am Pilgrim by whoever wrote I Am Pilgrim. <laughs> Sorry, I have only just started reading the book. So it's not I kind of... That. But the, the guy who reads the audiobook of I Am Pilgrim um, is Christopher Ragland, who also reads the uh, Hangman Hunter and Hideout yep. series. So I kind of bought the book largely to, to sort of hear what he sounded like when he wasn't being Timothy Blake. But it was interesting that, so I Am Pilgrim, I haven't read the blurb because I don't read blurbs. I don't know what it's about. But the first chapter that I have read is just, you know, someone walking in and there's a, a bed and there's, you know, high heeled shoes and lingerie next to it. And there's a dead woman in the bathtub. And I'm like, wow, this feels so dated already. The book is just, you know, I don't know, 2013, 2014. But that, that idea where you can kind of just have a crime novel where the first chapter is a dead woman in a hotel room, mm. that has almost um, uh, a, a Chandler feel in terms of how old it is. That feels like vintage crime now, even yeah. though it was only five or six years ago. Yeah. Now where readers are accustomed to something not necessarily more sophisticated because the writing in Iron Pilgrim is very, very good, but certainly something, something different. Mm, absolutely. And we, were, we were talking as well about, you know, people, I guess, because, you know, how true crime is so uh, popular at the moment, people wanting to explore the dark side of humanity and people wanting to explore what makes people act in particular ways. I mean, particularly a character like Timothy Blake. And so you kind of then have to go into the character's backstory and the psychology of it. You're almost forced to do that now. Yeah. I think um, it, it, the true crime thing is complicated because on the one hand, ethically, I don't feel like uh, one part of me thinks that you should never take uh, use someone else's suffering as entertainment, mm -hmm. right? So if you're reading true crime books for fun, then um, that's problematic, if not wrong. And one of the reasons that um, I, I think I'm okay with, reading so such I read some pretty ghastly crime fiction and I write some pretty ghastly crime fiction but that's fine because the victims aren't real the killers aren't real and that also means that someone like Timothy Blake um he has done so many terrible things that if he was a real person then getting the reader to feel sympathy for him and to forgive him that actually might not be an ethical thing to do like if I wouldn't want him to be a sympathetic character if he was real but because he is in the abstract, I can kind of get readers to abstractly agree to this premise that maybe nothing is maybe nothing is unforgivable and maybe everyone has hidden depths and we are all just a product of our upbringing and blah, 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 blah. But having said all of that, I still read a lot of true crime for research. One of the things that fed into Hideout was this sort of, this desire that we all have 
to not just to look into the dark side of ourselves and the dark side of society, but specifically to see evildoers punished, mm. right? To, to cast someone else, um, to sort of excommunicate them in, in our heads, to think that person is not like me and I want to see them suffer. And this is what drives social media. This is what drives an awful lot of the news. And this is where sort of hideout kind of picks up because the killers in the house that Blake um, infiltrates, they are kind of, well, they're pretty woke for a bunch of murderers. You know, they're, they're vegetarians. <laughs> do they yoga. Are, yeah, that's right. They do yoga. And one of the things that I wanted to emphasise with them, though, is that so they're a bit racist, right, particularly Johnny, and they're a bit sexist. You'll note that only one of them is a woman and, and you look mm-hmm. at the way they treat the others, treat her, Zara, but um, they cut themselves a lot of slack for their shortcomings because they spend all their time and energy punishing people that they see as worse than them. Mm. And I think that's a real human instinct. Like one of the reasons that we love reading true crime or looking at, you know, crime stories on the news or whatever is you can look at a monstrous person in the newspaper and hear a terrible story about a terrible thing they did. And then you can kind of pat yourself on the back for being such a good person because, well, I would never drown a bunch of puppies. So we kind of, we, we feel good about ourselves by reading about the worst that humanity has to offer. And um, Probably shouldn't be your benchmark though, right? Well, no, but it kind of becomes your benchmark <laughs> yeah. if you immerse yourself in it. If yeah. that makes any yeah. sense. No, absolutely. So what I wanted to explore with this book, this isn't just a book about rage, it's a yes. book about the people who turn rage into money. Um, so in a way, Fred is analogous to, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. Mm. Is Jack Dorsey the CEO of Twitter? I don't want to defame some other guy with that same name. If he's Actually, not. I don't want to defame anybody. <laughs> Call my lawyers. <laughs> that was try to sue us again, Jack, and this time it won't be a prank. I mean, and you'll be like, I don't believe you, Danny. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jack Call me once, shame on you. <laughs> now, I did want to talk about... Timothy Blake, because you touched on it a little bit about he's not me, he's not a real character, he's fictional, so you know, then we can just accept that and enjoy it as escapism. But it's interesting how he accepts he's not a good guy, but then he meets mm. a bunch of guys who are and, and girl who are, you know, he deems them worse than him, but then they are then keeping a bunch of people who they deem who are worse than them. It's then there's this layer of you know, oh, they're worse than me, so I'm better than them, et cetera, et cetera, just as we talked But Where does this end? And just because there's other people worse than you, does that make you you better? It's complex, Jack. Talk yeah. There's, um, there's a line in the book somewhere where Ruciani, who's an, an FBI agent who uh, just has a cameo in Hangman and another cameo in Hideout, he's just telling another agent that, if you want to make yourself happy, you, you don't look for someone to look up to. And I think maybe the reason that the reader forgives Timothy Blake, well, hopefully, that, that was kind of what I was trying to achieve, or at least understands him. The, the reader is kind of willing to feel empathy for Blake in a way that they're not willing to feel empathy for these other killers is because Blake kind of accepts his own flaws, or rather he doesn't accept them. You know, he, he hates himself for the things that he's done wrong. Yeah. Whereas these other people, they're... Um, they're very comfortable with themselves. I think Blake at one point has a conversation with Fred about that where he kind of, he discovers that Fred has had a bunch of therapy and, and learned to be sort of at peace with himself, but he's still doing all these terrible things, right? So Blake thinks, well, I should never get therapy because 
like feeling guilty is my one redeeming quality. Mm. <laughs> um, but he also asks himself, you know, is it bad to kill people who only kill bad people? Um, which I think is an interesting conundrum. It's funny how these days, so the anti-hero is pretty popular now, right? Yeah. You've got your Dexters, you've got your um, Walter Whites, and you've got your, um, uh, yes, your Timothy Blakes. They're, there's a few around. Uh, but I feel like, um, and actually, Jack Reacher might be a better example. We, we love Jack Reacher novels because he's this kind of lone vigilante walking around dispensing justice with his fists, right? And um, uh, I kind of, I, I had sort of participated in that genre, sort of the, the idea of someone who should work outside the law because the world is so screwed up that they shouldn't have to obey the rules, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. um, hideout was a, a way of sort of turning that inside out and saying, okay, here's the logical conclusion of what you're looking for. We, we have a group of vigilantes. Isn't it funny that in 2020, you can write a novel where the vigilantes are the bad guys and that's sort of, you know, controversial. <laughs> or if not controversial, then at least surprising. Now, Jack, I don't know if you want me to bring this up because sometimes we get carried away, but I'm always thinking when you talk about really good anti-heroes, you know who I'm talking about, don't you? Jack Bauer. <laughs> Because he starts off as, you know, a very sort of straight person who wants to sort of, you know, save the world and do the right thing. But as we know, as the series goes on, he starts going outside the law and, and justifies to himself what is right. So I'm sorry. Right. I couldn't have I, an interview um, with you without bringing up Jack Bauer. No, it's fair. I mean, the only wrong? reason that I know that you're a 24 fan and that you know that I'm a 24 fan is, is because of the Hangman series. We've, we've had this discussion before that I think... Uh, the the comparison that comes up when when people are talking about Timothy Blake, the, the comparison that people usually make is Hannibal Lecter mm -hmm. um, for pretty obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, he's an FBI consultant and also a cannibal. Like that's those <laughs> that's, that's where it clear, ends. Um, that's where it ends with them. Like yeah. But well, that that is where it ends. But but those are pretty big. I guess know, I don't big, know clear personality traits. Many cannibals, I suppose. But I do think, yeah, I do think um, Blake has much more in common with Jack Bauer than he does with Hannibal Lecter, in yeah. the sense that he's someone you know who is surrounded by people who are better than he is, um, but who frequently does the wrong thing, but for the right reasons, um, and is himself punished for it. I guess the the difference between Blake and and Bauer, cannibalism aside, is that um, uh, Jack Bauer has an enormous amount of sort of self-control and, um, you know, a rigid spine. Uh, he's, he's, you know, pr pretty upstanding even when he's breaking the law, whereas, yeah. whereas Blake sometimes does things for selfish reasons too, which uh, Bauer almost never does. And I think in a way, Timothy Blake is a little darker because he has that self-loathing of himself, whereas I think Jack Bauer always thinks he's doing the right thing, even when we can see clearly he's not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm, um, I, I'm not sure. Every time I write a Blake book, I assume that this time that part will be easier, like mm -hmm. deciding exactly where Blake is going to fall on the morality spectrum because um, too far in the good direction and he wouldn't be interesting, too yeah. far in the bad direction and readers aren't going to like him. Mm. So 
I'm always walking a tightrope. And every time I think I've, uh, I've got it figured out, but it never gets easier. I end up talking to um, Ali Laveau, who's one of the copy editors I've worked with quite a lot, and she's worked on Hangman and Hunter and now Hideout. Um, and Angela Handley, who, who uh, works with Alan and Unwin more directly. And so between me and these two women, where we spend a lot of trying to balance Blake's personality on a knife edge, um, with every book. It's not like he's ever static enough that I can just go, okay, here's another Blake book. Here is what he's like. Um, I'm constantly kind of bearing in mind, having to bear in mind the reader's emotions as well as his. Yeah, I agree. And I think you've actually done that very well because he is, despite what he is, you do have empathy for him. But I think it comes with that sort of sarcastic humour he has as well, which makes him quite likeable because I think, you know, I really love the tone of the character and that kind of, you know, sardonic attitude that he has, which comes a little bit with self-loathing. But, you know, I think adding humour to that darkness is important in his likability, if you like, or acceptability as a reader. It definitely is. And not just in terms of his uh, character, but also the book as a whole. You know, if, if the book was just horrible things happening, then no one would like it. But yep. the, the fact that it can sort of horrify you one minute and then have you laughing the next, I think readers are a, a bit more forgiving. And it also helps. The, the reason that the humour came out, I don't think it's a... It wasn't necessarily a deliberate choice at first, it was just that because Blake is kind of my my alter ego, my my worst my worst alter ego. Anytime I have like a, a very cynical kind of cutting thought um, that I would never say out loud because you know what sort of horrible person would even think that, I can just put it into a Blake book. <laughs> so <laughs> Blake uh, Blake gets to kind of say out loud or at least think um and the reader can hear his thoughts he gets to think all the things that i would keep a secret and the other part of it is sort of that recognizability it's funny because it's true like blake has some kind of terrible um terrible opinions about humanity and society and stuff and and the the readers are sort of shocked by how how blunt he is about everything but they can also kind of if they're not seeing themselves reflected in him, they're at least seeing sort of society reflected through his eyes and going, yeah, I can see that. I can see why he has that sort of harsh opinion. But I definitely hear your voice sometimes when Timothy Blake's speaking. Okay, well, uh, that's good. <laughs> Maybe that means I don't have to... I, I kind of worry a, a little bit about what I'm going to do when I don't have him anymore. Partly that's a sort of professional worry, like Blake has been lucrative... <laughs> <laughs> uh, lucrative for me but also there's this nice kind of psychological benefit to being able to push all the darkness out of your own head and onto a page and to sort of separate out part of yourself as a sort of Tyler Durden if you will yeah, and if I right. if I, I stop writing him I don't know if if that means I get all that cynicism and nihilism back like because I don't have an outlet mm, for it that's or interesting if con or possibly conversely, and it, it may be that the fact that I'm still writing Blake after all these years forces me to see the world through a more cynical and nihilistic lens. And if I stopped writing about him, I'd be much more psychologically healthy. It's, wow. uh, it's something that'll be hard to predict until it happens. Well, let's have a conversation when it happens and we'll psychoanalyze you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <please. laughs> 
I love how you said that you're the Ed Norton, I forget what his character's name is, to the Tyler Durden in, in uh, his book. It's great. The Edward Norton character is unnamed. That's why you can't oh, because <laughs> that, I think, that's a relief. Um, Tyler, I think Tyler Durden is his real name probably. It's just uh, that he never acknowledges that. Um, I love that film. It has been a while since I've seen it. I think it's due for a rewatch. It is. I've heard people um, more recently describe it as, you know, uh, misogynistic and problematic in a range of other ways. But I actually think um, Fight Club is almost more timely now than mm. it was when it was written or, or when it was released, in part because so people are, I've heard people criticise it by saying that it's kind of an, an advert for the idea of joining a terrorist group. Um, when, I think it's quite the when opposite. I look at it, yeah, it seems like much more of a cautionary tale than that. It, yeah. it kind of shows the audience the allure and the appeal of joining a terrorist group and then shows us the protagonist kind of realising that he's done something terrible and that he can't get control back. I feel like, and I also, um, there's there's a, a podcast that I quite like called The Bechdel Cast, um, where basically just a, a couple of comedians analyse movies through a feminist lens. And I thought they were a, a little bit tough on, on Fight Club, but in part they were suggesting that Fight Club's anti, anti-materialistic stance, you know, Tyler Durden is, is sitting there saying, you know, why do we even know what a duvet is? It's a blanket. You don't need that. You're working, working jobs we hate to pay for things we, we don't, don't need, need. need, all that stuff. Um, it was suggesting that that was done from a place, from a kind of misogynistic place where basically it was saying that, you know, uh, society has been too feminised, um, women love shopping, therefore shopping is bad, oh. that kind of thing. No, and I didn't get that at all, Jack. In fact, I thought it criticised toxic masculinity because it was just so, you know, devastating for the character in the end because he'd completely lost control and he, he turned to, like you said, that sort of cult and he turned to toxic masculinity and it didn't really work out for him. <laughs> Exactly. And I, I feel like um, most of those criticisms seem to come from people who remember the first half more vividly than the second half or something. Okay. Like, they I, turned I it off see why fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we watched that movie. It was 1999. Mm. Um, so it's, I'm sure different things will come out with 20 years of hindsight. And the book's really good too. I, yeah. I recommend the book. I yeah, actually definitely. like the ending a little bit. But you know, but, we're talking um, about this kind of thing about turning things on its head. It's exactly, it's exactly like Borat, right? I just recently watched Borat too. And when yeah. you watch it, you know, he perpetuates, you know, um, racism and perpetuates, um, you know, the, the COVID deniers and all of that. But you know that he actually means the opposite. He's yeah. actually, he's actually, um, it's a parody of those people. So it's a satire of those people. So it's interesting that, you know, you can watch something from multiple layers and I feel like Fight Club has the same potential as Borat only seeing it at that face value. Yeah, it's funny because you have to decide to an extent, uh, like I said before, if, if one reader doesn't get it, then it's the reader, but if all the readers don't get it, then, <laughs> then it's the author. And to an extent, it doesn't matter what your intentions were as an author. The book you wrote is the book you wrote. So where this all comes back to, I guess, Borat and stuff is that, yes, clearly Sasha Baron Cohen is doing this from a place of criticising the things that 
peers um, talking positively about. So <laughs> Borat talks positively about the things that Sasha Baron Cohen hates and vice yes, versa. Yeah. Um, but if you never know just how much of the audience is going to get that, like how, mm. how many people are going to see that message and how many are going to, to um, see a different message. And mm. to bring us back to Fight Club again for a second, um, Chuck Polinick, when asked about sort of actual fight clubs starting all over the USA, when the message of the book was clearly don't join a fight club, you know, <laughs> um, he kind of just shrugged and said, well, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to the readers. Like that's the thing. You're a writer. You write this thing, it becomes a book, and then they buy it, and then it's their book now. You don't get a say in yeah. what they take from it. Yeah. Um, and then when it gets adapted to a movie and other people see that movie, you have even less of a say about that because you didn't even make the work of art that they're, that they're sort of projecting onto you. We've had this conversation before about how you have always been really good at representing strong women and women in all different careers, especially particularly in your kids' books as well. So, you know, I know that your intentions were definitely in a, in a good place there, Jack. Yeah. Well, there's actually one of the things that I wanted to do with um, Hideout. I, I read a lot of classic noir, right? And I really loved, um, I've always loved the sort of femme fatale character. Yeah. That I'm aware that it's a stereotype, right? <laughs> Pause Hunter, feminist. Like there were, um, Dr. Lara Kane Gray wrote a wonderful essay, or wonderful to me anyway, she wrote it an essay that I loved about how, how well Hunter does as, as feminist fiction and all the, the various things that it said about toxic masculinity and about sexual assault and all, all these, these various sort of, um, I don't yeah. want to say women's issues, that's not quite right, but issues that disproportionately affect women and mm -hmm. how society views the lens of gender. I was very thoughtful about that in Hunter and, and well, I'm thoughtful about it in every book, but in, in Hunter it was sort of, very obvious. Everyone could see the direction that I was coming from when I was making these statements. Yeah. And because I'd done that so overtly with Hideout, I was like, I reckon I can get away with writing a femme fatale now. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've, I've made my statement. People, um, people know that, that, you know, I see my female characters as people. So maybe just this once I can get away with putting, putting in this stereotype, this archetype that I always loved when I was reading other people's crime fiction when I was younger. So that's where Zara came from. <laughs> I, I love this sort of I can scary, see that now, Jack. Um, yeah. <laughs> the slinky dress. Exactly. The slinky dress. She's both scary and sexy, kind of <laughs> unknowable, this like unknowable seductress who is clearly dangerous but also enticing, all that stuff. She was a lot of fun to write. <laughs> she was a lot of fun to read too, I must say. Oh, good. You explore the dark web and its complexities, and I find the dark web just so terrifying. I've watched documentaries on it, but I have not explored it any further than that because it absolutely terrifies me. What was your experience and research of the dark web, Jack? Um, so I've never been on the dark web myself, and that's, that's a good idea. Choice, yeah. yeah it's, it's I think very... you should stick with that choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very easy thing to do, but because I've spent um, so much of my time uh, googling things like how do you dispose of a body, or how do you make a bomb, or whatever, <laughs> I figure if I then start going dark web, where um, 
where you know where my my browsing activities can't be tracked <laughs> then that would actually be that kind of takes away my alibi not yes. alibi alibis <laughs> that's a strong word, word. <laughs> yeah if, if the police if the police ever start looking at my laptop i want to be able to say look i'm a book writer you can see every website i've been to you can see the questions i asked to get there you can see See the books that you will, can also tell that I've never been on the dark web. Whereas if I had been on the dark web, they could point to that and go, "So what were you researching here?" And then I'd have no proof that um, <laughs> that, it, that it was actually something not criminal. So, but I read a wonderful book called *The Darkest Web* by Eileen Ormsby, which is yes. a, a work of nonfiction. Um, which deals. It, it's basically in three parts. The first part is about the online drugs market. Second part is about um, uh, you know web- websites where you can hire a hitman. Um, spoiler yeah. warning: you can't actually hire a hitman via a dark web website. They are always either undercover cops or always dodgy. Or something. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, and then the third part was about the kind of torture porn industry. And so some of this was very hard to read. Like even though I wasn't seeing any of the material myself, um, it was. Some parts of it left me shaken, but it was a wonderfully written book, and I um and I I really really liked it, and I referred to it quite a lot while I was writing not only Hideout but Hunter as well. Um, I also found myself um uh reading some so more recently I I had only I was putting kind of the finishing touches on Hideout when I picked this up, but there's another great book called Troll Hunting by Ginger Gorman. Mm-hmm. that um, is not, so not much of it is about the dark web per se, but it is about sort of the people who anonymously inhabit the dark corners of the internet and and use their sort of skills to, to ruin people's lives for whatever reason, particularly women, particularly people of colour. I mean, those are the people whose lives get ruined by the trolls. And so Ginger Gorman is a pretty courageous journalist uh, who you know kind of puts herself in real danger to, to talk to these people and to research these stories. But, but that book was really good as well. And one more which didn't address the dark web at all, but was definitely kind of where the first inklings of where Hideout might come from um, was So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, a terrific book just about, well, people who've had their lives ruined over Twitter because of something that they've said mostly. But but it, it was kind of the first point at which I realised that online anger was an industry that people were actually making money from. Wow. So um, the guards in the hideout, uh, so they are not running Twitter, but it's only a little exaggeration of, um, of what I see social media as like. And now the irony is that I'm going to have to spend the next few weeks on social media <laughs> non-stop to try to promote this book about this my anti-social media book. <laughs> it's good to explore these things, Jack, I think. Yeah. It's <laughs> well, good I, to know. Absolutely. And I read, I um, watched this documentary that said that even some parts of the dark web, you're breaking the law even if you access some parts of it. Mm. Crazy, yeah, right? Well, that's um, one of the things that that's true of the clear web too, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got things like, uh, you know, um, piracy and, and yeah. various stuff like that. I feel like one of the things that turned up in Hideout at one point was um, the way clicking a mouse never feels like a crime. Like mm-hmm. sometimes it is, but it never feels like it. 
It's, yeah. There's this weird thing where uh, whenever we talk about a, a victimless crime, what we usually mean is that the victim isn't right in front of us and you end up with um, uh, sort of that, that disconnect where you're only viewing things through a screen. It doesn't feel real. It's like yeah. we talk about the real world and the online world as though they are separate things and they are, but they're connected. Mm, absolutely. No, that's interesting because it's not a not a fictional TV show you're watching, particularly not a book. And I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't read it. So mm. maybe we'll, we'll we'll stop it there. But I wanted to ask yeah. you, Jack. Um, you know, I, I came to your celebrate Jack publishing thirty books party in Canberra, which was such a great achievement of yours. How many books are you up to now? Um, I actually don't know. I feel <laughs> like I remember at that, that party to it was celebrate actually the publication. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. My, my wife uh, confessed in her speech, she's like, I wanted to throw this party for Jack's 30th book and he released a 31st before I could get around to it or the RSVP's ring or whatever. We didn't I think, mind. I think we're up to about 35 now, but wow. honestly, I don't, um, I haven't stopped counting but I, I feel like I'll want to know when I get to 40. <laughs> so every now and again, I kind of have a, have a bit of a look at the shelf. But it used to be so easy. I could just go, okay, well, I wrote the Age and Six of Hearts series, and that was four, and then I wrote Hangman, something like nine books. Whereas now, there's not just so many books, there's so many series. Mm. And I was putting the finishing touches on my new novel today, and I realised that I've actually run out of names, like... <laughs> The, um, every, every name in the universe, I appear to have used it for a character because oh. one of the characters is named Cameron and it was almost, I was about to hit send and I'm like, wait, wasn't Cameron the kid from Hangman as well? Will, oh, wow. will all the real world Camerons, how badly Cameron did in my book? Because I have nothing against Camerons. I quite <laughs> like the name and obviously because I keep using it so much and forgetting that I've used it in the past. You need one of those um, thousand baby, you know, those thousand baby name books and you need to highlight whenever you use one. Mm, Good idea, right? I need one from kind of 30 years ago to make sure that they're appropriate age mm. name. Got to be contextually right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It'd be fun to write some kind of book set in the future but an accurate version of the future in terms of the pop culture references all the 85-year-old in the novel love Justin Bieber because it's <laughs> said in the year 2047 or something like that. Mostly I just I eyeball the people in my signing queues and whenever I'm supposed to sign a book for someone who has a name that I don't remember using, I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good name. I'm sure I can find somewhere for that. So if you want a character named after you in one of my books, please come along to one of my book signings. You never know you love. <laughs> I love that. That's a good idea. Now, I wanted to ask you, you write, you know, adult or fiction for adults and you write kid lit as well. What do you enjoy writing the most or is it whatever you're writing at the time? Uh, it's, they're more similar than you would think. People, people think that it's completely separate skills, mm. but really the, all the rules of writing still apply. Writing books for children is harder. Um, in part because uh, there are words that you can't use because the kids won't be familiar with. There are yeah. other words that you can't use like because cannibal. they're going to offend the parents or the teachers. <laughs> yeah, like cannibal. <laughs> there are themes that you don't want to touch. Um, but there's also uh, 
the the advantage of writing for kids though is that a, a child can suspend their disbelief quite a lot further than an adult is willing to do. Um, so that means if I want to write a book where the main character falls into a lake of liquid nitrogen and then gets shot in the chest with a grappling hook and then pulled out just in time for the, the glove of gaseous liquid nitrogen to protect him from the freezing cold, I, I, a kid will read that and go, awesome, whereas an adult will read that and go, that would never happen. I so, totally bought it, Jack. Um, so that makes writing <laughs> Well, the laden frost effect is a real thing, but... <laughs> You know, you can't turn the whole... If you're writing for adults, you kind of need to add a few extra pages of mm. explanation to, mm. to make it convincing, you know, whereas for kids... Make kids it. just so go, yeah, that cool. That a lot of fun. But the other thing is that um, when I'm writing uh, about someone who is my own age, uh, I don't have to think as hard in terms of... Uh, Timothy Blake and say that oh, this person has a voice named Christina Aguilera, sorry, <laughs> a voice like Christina Aguilera, and I don't have to then go, do kids still know who Christina Aguilera <laughs> is? I just know because I am in my 30s yeah. and I know, then Blake can know that as well. That's fine. And the other thing is that if I'm writing a Blake book, I am writing the kind of book that I would want to read. Um, whereas if I'm writing a kid's book, then I'm writing the kind of book that I think I would have enjoyed when I was a child crossed with the kind of book that I think my own children might enjoy <laughs> in a few years. And so there's quite a lot of mental hoops I have to jump through to get myself into that headspace um, in a way, whereas, um, whereas when I'm writing Blake, it just flows much more naturally. So I think writing for adults is is more fun on balance, but I don't want to give up my kids' writing career because then all my silly ideas would have nowhere to go. So you need somewhere for your silly ideas and somewhere for your evil ideas to go. Exactly. It's not an either-or thing. Being a cannibal FBI agent is both and evil. <laughs> if I asked you, why do you write? Why do I write at all? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like if you had asked me that question, I would already have an answer for it that would come more naturally to me than the words I am speaking now. So you probably haven't asked me. It's funny how few people ask that because I exist in a bubble where everyone is either like a writer or an obsessive reader or a librarian or something like that. So they're obsessed with books and they're like, why wouldn't you write? Like, what else is there to do? Um, but I think in my case, I've always loved reading and I've always loved making things like it's, it's never enough for me to just consume a work of art or anything. I always want to try to replicate it. So this isn't just books. This is if I hear a song on the radio and I like it, then I'm not happy until I've kind of worked out what the chords are and I can sort of replicate it on my piano or my guitar. If I eat you know a delicious meal in a restaurant I want to know how it's made and I want to try to make it myself so the fact that I reading is the thing that I love most of all so trying to recreate the kinds of books that I love is just uh, it's a sort of natural instinct and it's something that I can't really fight even if I didn't do this as my day job like writing is my only job but before it became my only job, I was writing at night or in the early mornings or on the weekends or whatever, because, and it didn't make any sense for me to do that. It's not like I was happy working such long hours and exhausting myself and always staring at a screen, but I was compelled to do it. 
It's just something that I, I feel like I have to do. Um, but I have also found that sometimes, so I'm pretty easily manipulated by other people's opinions as well. So maybe if someone else had told me that there was something else that I was good at, like if I was good at sports, maybe I'd be a runner, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or if someone had, you know, told me that I was good at sport, maybe I certainly remember in a year nine English class, I had submitted submitted a short story as my assignment and my year nine English teacher Mrs Smith spent she devoted a significant portion of the lesson to telling the rest of the class how great my story was and describing it in, in quite a lot of detail and that was the first time I remember kind of going like hey I'm good at like it wasn't just that um I mean obviously I knew that I liked it and I knew that I'd spend all my time on it but I was kind of looking around at my classmates and going did it everyone not write a story like that or did everyone not do this it could be cup stacking it could be solving rubik's cubes whatever you just <laughs> give it to me just desperate to be the best at something so i said before that blake is my um my alter ego kind of so when i became a father blake needed to kind of become a father too or at least he needed to believe that he had become one this is kind yes. of one of the, the threads that comes up in hideout there's someone who may or may not be related to blake and um, I found, oh, and, and more to the point, there's another character in it named Penny who uh, her whole arc is kind of about becoming a mother and how she experiences that. She was a pretty autobiographical character for me. Thoroughly enjoyed Hideout. I think when I started reading it, you know, it had been a while since I'd read the last two, I think, and, um, you know, I'd read a lot of books in between and I, I got back to it and I was like, yeah, you know what, Jack, my mate, he's actually a really good writer. I didn't mean to sound surprised about that, but I was like, you know what? He knows what he's doing and this book is great. So it was a really good feeling to pick it up again, Jack. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much, Danny. I, um, I can't wait to share it with the whole world. When you spend 18 months on something kind of toiling away in secret, the, the opportunity to chat with people about it, um, even the bits that they didn't like, is just a, just a delight. So Absolutely. thanks for giving me that opportunity. And it's always a pleasure to chat with you. We always go on tangents. I think I threw my questions away after question one. I don't even know why I bothered writing questions, Jack, because we went on these tangents of Flight Club, of Jack Bauer, of we just have this great chat, go on tangents. And, um, you know, always, I think it's tradition now, we always have to bring up Jack Bauer at least once. But just to give you an idea for how much I tend to go off track, <laughs> Anne in Luxford was not in mind for Hunter. Mm -hmm. And the meat grinder was not in my outline for hideout. These wow. are things that uh, just just popped up, it popped into my head at the moment, and I go, "This might be cool. <laughs> this might become a problem for future Jack." But what do I care? I'm present Jack, and that's, I think this scene would be awesome. That's future Jack's problem. No, the meat grinder, like that, you had to have that in hideout. Well, we don't want to mention too much more about the meat grinder because we don't want to do, you know, spoilers. So you're going to have to go out and get hide out and read the other two if you haven't, but I'm sure people have read the other two. But it's a great follow-up. And, look, I know you don't know the answer to this question, but if there was a fourth book, Jack, I would be totally up for reading it. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Okay, I might take you up on that. <laughs> Thanks again, Jack. Always a pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Danny. You too.